Laura Johnston is back in the house. It's This Week in the CLE, the news podcast from Cleveland.com and The Plain Dealer. I'm Chris Quinn here with my colleagues, Chris Warnowski, Jane Cahoon, and Laura Johnston back after a week off. Laura, have you watched Hamilton on Disney Plus yet? I was watching Hamilton on Disney Plus on Friday night. We brought the TV outside uh, so we could have our neighbors over and watch them together. And the kids were transfixed. It was really fun. It's great. We watched it last night and it it is so much fun to see. I mean, I, like you, I'd seen it in the theater and Jane, but, but man, seeing it that close up with the facial expressions. Yeah, I definitely yeah. didn't see facial expressions. Yeah. My a lot of, a lot of spit. Like I've God, it's just such a great show though. I mean, I could watch that over and over again. Okay, let's get started. In this summer of revolutionary change, can it be true that Cleveland's baseball team will finally get rid of the Indians' name that so many find offensive? It seems like getting rid of Chief Wahoo, which is about as racist a symbol as has ever existed, was an enormous hurdle. I mean, the fight over that and the ties people felt to that because of tradition kept it around. It just seems so much longer than it should have been. So when that was done and people raised the Indians' name, two years ago, you thought this would never happen. But lo and behold, Laura Johnston, we might be on the eve of getting rid of a name that so many people think is inappropriate. Yeah. And on the eve is right, because it was the eve of July 4th. Uh, they put out a tweet at 8.30 p.m. saying they were considering a new name. And this is about a day after the Washington Redskins made a similar announcement. The team said they understand their role in the community and the responsibility of speaking up for justice. So they haven't said anything else since then, but this, they've been the Indians since 1915. Um, and the choice for that name is kind of debated. They were previously named the Naps after star player Nap Lajoie, uh, who my cousin's distantly related to. But anyway, after Native American Indian player Louis Sock Alexis. So there are people that say this is really a tribute, but there are a lot of people that say, no, yeah. this should not be here. Look, the, the the Redskins has been a hot point for a long time because that's such an offensive name. And the only reason they are considering it is because their chief sponsor, FedEx, sent them a one-sentence message saying, we think you should change your name. And when the big money speaks and when advertisers start to speak, which a lot of them are, things change rapidly. But it was fascinating how quickly they turned it around. Now, you're right. They, they released this at 8.30 on the eve of July 4th through a damn tweet, which is not the way to go about making this big a statement. We've had eight pieces of content on this. Paul Hoynes, Joe Noga, they were all over it. Okay. But Terry Pluto did a real nice insider's look at what is going on here. And he says, this will happen. It'll happen next year and they'll move on. That Paul Dolan's ready to do it. So some of the names that have come up, Laura, one is a return to the spiders. Right. I think that's one of the fan favorites. And people are really into what that logo could look like, especially incorporating the Block C. Yeah, I don't know. I I hate spiders. I love the one that cropped up (laughs) mid-weekend, the Guardians, using those stone faces from the bridge and calling them the Cleveland Guardians. I also thought the Cleveland Rocks was pretty cool, too. There was a whole bunch. We have a column up today on the ideas that people had and there were cleveland sailors uh cleveland midges because they've already helped us win a pretty important Ooh. game the cleveland captains which i think it's the lake county captains is like the, the most minor league team right but that you could play off the captain america trilogy with some of it 
filming here. People had some really interesting suggestions. I mean, I haven't trolled through all the social media, and I'm sure we've gotten emails saying, I'm not going to support the Indians anymore if they change their name. Yeah, but yeah, yeah, there yeah, are yeah. a lot of people that are like, this is a great opportunity to come up with something that makes a little more sense for Cleveland anyway. And I think people realize how important it is for these mainstays of our community to be like forward thinking instead of just, you know, this is the way we've always done it. The guardians on the bridge are such iconic Cleveland images that that that's kind of cool. I, I mean, I just I, I'm scared of spiders, so <laughs> is that really going to keep you away from the the team? Is if they yeah, it's creepy. I don't know. Anyway, it's uh, it's just what a dramatic turn so rapidly. It's fascinating how quickly this summer the country mm-hmm. is just dropping all of these things that have taken forever. To move along in the Indians name, the Redskins name, they're all part of it. It'll be interesting to see if they do the same thing with the Braves. That hasn't hasn't come up yet. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Ohio Governor Mike DeWine, is he bold or wishy-washy with his decision to turn Ohio's coronavirus battle over to local governments? DeWine, as we all know, made huge national headlines for his firm solid leadership and quickly shutting down the state and teaching us all about mask use and hand washing and all the things he talked about in his briefings. But then he opened up the state. Some said too soon. He has been blasted nonstop from the far right for what he did. And now he's turning it over to local government. Jane Cahoon, what did he set up on Thursday to make this possible? Well, as you said, I think we saw a different governor from that. The one who was so out front, you know, first to close schools and, you know, shutting down businesses to combat this virus. But what he did on Thursday at his last briefing on the eve of the holiday weekend was this longer than usual presentation about this new alert system that they've devised where they color code counties according to their level of outbreak or or risk. And he just went over in painstaking detail these, you know, seven criteria that they use and what each alert category meant. But basically, it's just, I mean, someone said right. it's, it's really nothing didn't... that anybody at the local level doesn't already know. They know right. if they have outbreaks or anyway. So basically, he's turning the whole thing over to local governments to deal with this as they see fit. And And rather than be the one who's out front with these things. He's doing things like praising Dayton Mayor Nan Whaley and Columbus Mayor Andy Ginther for instituting mask-wearing mandate. All right, I'm going to take the contrarian view here. But before I do, one, that, that, that rating system is preposterous. It took him longer to explain it that it does to get cured of the coronavirus. It was ridiculous. <laughs> but, but I think there's a chance that this is a brilliant piece of strategy. That yes, he did everything right at the beginning of the coronavirus, and maybe he opened too soon. But I would argue that what he did here was to block and thwart the people that are trying to stop the controls. Right now, everything he does ends up in a lawsuit in Lake County. The people that are against him go to a favorable judge in Lake County, and they gum this thing up in the courts. If you have it be purely local, If Dayton passes a mask ordinance, you can't go to Lake County to file the suit. And you might not care because you don't care about Dayton. If Frank Jackson passes a mask ordinance, you can't go to Lake County to fight Frank Jackson. you got to go to the Cuyahoga County courts. I think 
this might prove to be a really smart strategy. Of course, DeWine says none of this. He actually never said, I'm turning the battle over to the locals. You had to read between the lines. But in the end, this might be the most effective way of getting some real rules in place about the coronavirus. What do you think? But was it intentional? I don't know about that. The thing that struck me the most about this was the shift in the rhetoric and the tone, both on the part of DeWine and Lieutenant Governor John Houston. I mean, they used to be out there saying, let's smash the curve and fight the monster. And and now they're talking like, we have to we have to learn to live with the virus. You know, and here yeah. we are with more cases than we've practically ever had on a daily basis, that rolling you know, daily average is up to like 977. But given that, and given that anything he does to try and restrict it, and he hasn't done anything lately, knowing that it's going to go into court. So sit down. You're, you're Mike DeWine. You're John Houston. You're the health department at the state. And you're saying, okay, we got a big problem here. This thing is getting out of control. Anything we do is going to end up in court where it gets gummed up for a year. How do we get past this quickly? Well, this is a way to do it quickly. Dayton has a mask requirement. Cleveland has a mask requirement. You know, the, the places that are seeing the most cases suddenly have some pretty tough rules in place that we didn't have before. So I, I don't know. I, I, I think he was so smart in the way he did this that and maybe I'm Pollyannish. I'm giving him the benefit of the doubt. <laughs> well, I'll tell you, you know, we're all talking about uh, watching Hamilton now. I just would love to be in the room where it happens. <laughs> <laughs> well, what do you got? What's interesting, and, and Jane pointed this out, is the learning to live with it rhetoric is now also the White House rhetoric on this, that our response to something, that, I mean, it, it almost, it's, Somebody keeps pointing out, and several people keep pointing this out on Twitter and in social media, that our response to this has suddenly become the same response we have to like gun, like mass shootings, which is like, well, what are you going to do? You, you know, we just got to, the world's got to go on and we have to just learn to live with everything. And it's like, well, no, there are actual things we can do. And so we've like in, in the span of a couple of, of weeks, we've gone through, we're all in this together to, we're all into this together, asterisk except for Cuyahoga County, Dayton, and, you know, <laughs> all these other places. And, and so, you know, it, it, you know, maybe, maybe there is some, some, you know, genius legal strategy at play here, but honestly, I, it just, it feels like nobody at the state level wants to make a really politically difficult decision to say, we have to stop this. I mean, we're, we're a couple of weeks away from, you know, year round schools going back you know, and we have like no real steadfast guidance on that either. I mean, we, we're just like, there's so much that, that needs yeah. to be done still. And, and I, I just feel like we've gotten away from actually doing things that are going to keep this under control. This is Laura Johnston. And I didn't sit through that press conference. So I'm sorry, guys, I was driving from, uh, from uh, Michigan. That was the best Indiana. thing you ever did was being on vacation. I was kind of like, oh, I'm really glad I have today off. But is there any concern that these local boards, I mean, we've talked about it a lot, that they're not really forthcoming with information that if we're ceding everything to the locals, then we're going to get less information? Well, I don't know. I, I do think they were bad in the beginning. And we, we nobody complained louder than us, actually. Nobody complained except us, I think. But they did turn it around. I mean, we're getting some really good details from the Cuyahoga County Board of Health and the Summit County Board of Health 
Uh, I think, you know, in the beginning when DeWine started this, nobody knew anything. I mean, back then the advice was not to wear masks. Right. I, yeah, so, he, so he used the shutdown to educate the state on what you should be doing to stop this. And the health boards got it in gear. I mean, there were these archaic, antiquated boards that really had never been in the spotlight before. And of course, they, you know, go with secrecy and nonsense, but they're not anymore. And so, you know, and look, I mean, to Chris's point, he's saying, you know, nothing was happening. Something's happening now in the in the pockets of the state where the biggest threat is things are happening. And time will tell whether what the governor has done and what the locals are doing will reduce or slow the spread of the virus. We have to watch the numbers. We have to see what happens. But but I'm I'm going with this is a stroke of brilliance. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. When will Cleveland Mayor Frank Jackson's emergency order that people in the city wear masks get some teeth in it so it can be enforced? Frank Jackson issued an executive order also, uh, like everything else that happened around here, on Friday late in the day, saying people have to wear masks which raised questions immediately. Wait, wait, wait. In Dayton, it took an act of city council to make that happen. Why can Frank Jackson just do it? And Chris Wernowski, it turns out, he can issue the order, but it's meaningless until something else happens. What has to happen here? Right. So apparently his executive authority only extends to saying everybody needs to wear masks now, but the city council will have to pass legislation that will create uh, like a system of penalties for not wearing masks. And, and so, um, city council president Kevin Kelly said last week that the council will attempt to approve that legislation on July 15th. So that's the earliest that will go, uh, to the city council. Um, and the penalties are not just for people who don't wear masks in public, which I, they're not a lot of money, but there's some money right. in it. The more important one was the fines for he Jackson is limiting bars to 50 percent capacity and some other rules. And there's some pretty stiff fines for those. I have a hard time seeing how we're going to have anybody enforcing mask wearing in the county. There's no police to do that. But the bars, there could be enforcement. And and honestly, like I've seen gatherings of police at these demonstrations and they're not wearing masks either. And (laughs) and so it's like, all right, you're going to tell me to wear a mask, but it's probably like, I'm just going to go through really quick, like what the, the fine structure here that they're, they're proposing. So customers of social venues, including restaurants and bars will be issued a $25 citation for failing to wear a mask. Employees will receive a $50 citation for not wearing masks. Venues that fail to implement social distancing guidelines and businesses that violate the 50% occupancy limit will be fined three grand for the first violation and five grand for each subsequent violation. And any establishment that violates maximum capacity orders twice will be ordered to shut down. Residents or property owners who violate the city's ban on gatherings of more than 10 people will receive a $150 citation for the first incident. And three hundred dollars for each subsequent incident. So, Pinkard's um, overnight note listed two gigantic gatherings on Cleveland's east side last night, and I don't think any citations were issued there. So we'll have to see how they enforce that mass gathering. Do you think the city will publicize if they issue these fines to to deliver the message that they're serious about it, or is this lip service? Um, I don't know. I mean, they're very selective in the information they release about just about everything. So <laughs> it's difficult to say if, if they're going to be transparent about this to say, hey, we're actually doing something. You know, you, you hope people will just do the right thing. But, you know, we'll see if they make a couple examples out of people. And 
where they choose to to put their you know manpower to look into this. I mean, I like, bars, yeah, are it, the it's, it's real. I mean, really, you got to be downtown Ohio City, Tremont. You know, those are the places where you're you're going to have you know the the quote unquote bad actors that that are really just not paying much attention to any of the guidelines that they should be. So this was a joint announcement by Jackson and County Executive Armin Budish, who does not have the power to issue an order, but said he will go to the county council to institute a similar mask requirement in public county spaces. I'm not quite sure what that is, though. I mean, most parts of Cuyahoga County are incorporated and cities hold sway. And I don't think I could be wrong. I don't think Budish is talking about having a countywide mask requirement in every municipality because it was real specific to public county spaces so what are we talking about in county buildings and right in county buildings i mean i think what this illustrates and what we kind of talked about on the podcast before about the state order you know and then the way we're doing it now by local governments is that you know we're a network of what how many municipalities in this county and each one has its own government and each one has its own police department and enforcement arms. And, and so, you know, if your experience in Cleveland might be different than your experience in Lakewood or Rocky river or Cleveland Heights or Shaker Heights. And so, you know, it boggles my mind that, you know, we're, we're doing this sort of piecemeal by government now. And, and, you know, well, who, and Buddhist who, is, and the county is, yeah, I mean, it seems more like a symbolic gesture than, than anything that has the force of law. But, you know, that's a good thing. I mean, if the governments are all saying wear a mask because people are going to get sick and they're going to die, you know, The Guardian had a great story over the weekend about all these mild cases, quote unquote, that the president and others talk about. Mm-hmm. And they discussed the long-term effects that mostly younger people are feeling months later, fatigue and lung distress and you know before they got sick they 95 percent of them i think said they felt they were healthy and months after they were sick six percent did or something like that so so good you know if the government says wear masks even if they're not really going to go out and write a lot of tickets at least it's something to try and get this thing stopped you're listening for this week in the cle what was black lives matter cleveland seeking when it held a rally on the anniversary of this nation's birth, Independence Day, over the weekend. This was a a pretty bold set of statements, Laura Johnston, that they were making. They did it specifically on Independence Day for emphasis. What were the three messages they were delivering? So they have three petitions. One is being able to create a public database on individual police officers and their background on the force, such as what kind of reprimands they've gotten. The second, they want to abolish the phrase blue lives matter from public buildings and patrol cars. And lastly, they want to prohibit police from purchasing and using military equipment in the city. So they, they had this on July 4th for a reason. They were black to black out racism and they were at Luke Easter Park uh, and they marched to the intersection of East 93rd Street and Kinsmen where the street, that's where the street's been painted with the intricate design of black lives matter. And they they hope to rename that whole area Black Lives Matter intersection. And it was a peaceful protest. Chris Warnowski, do Cleveland police cars have signs on them that say Blue Lives Matter? Do you know? I don't know. I mean, I haven't seen it. You know, you see, you're starting to see things like the the modified Punisher logo and the defaced flag. I mean, I don't know what else to call it. You know, when they, the thin blue line flag that 
you know, that gets, you know, I, you see like bumper stickers and, and stuff like that. I, I honestly have never seen a squad car with the blue lives matter logo on it or, or the phrase. I, but yeah, I haven't either, but if it's out there, that that's kind of, I'm surprised that, that the city administration would allow a message like that on police cars because it's so offensive to what's going on in this country. It's just, I'm just, it's just I, when I saw that that was what they were seeking, I was surprised because I haven't seen it. But again, I haven't been in downtown in quite some time. <laughs> this week in the CLE, what was in Ohio Governor Mike DeWine's guidelines for school reopenings in the state when he finally, finally released them last week? Jane Cahoon, he kept promising us we would not be surprised. He didn't promise us we'd be bored to tears, but he kind of <laughs> delivered on both. <laughs> Oh, you stepped on my line there, Chris. Um, yeah, <laughs> sorry. no surprises. The The only real mandates are that the teachers are going to have to wear masks. And it's strongly recommended that students, I think, grade three and up, wear them as well. So they, they release some learning guidelines as well as some health and safety guidelines. And they're what you, you know, would expect, cleaning and sanitizing and you know, the, the learning guidelines are like, you know, flexibility at the local level and assessing students and, you know, but they're all just guidelines. They're not, they're not mandates except but for this, the mask for teachers. But this does fit the theme that the governor has taken in the latter half of this pandemic, that it's a local government issue. So he, and he has said repeatedly about school districts, it's up to the districts. They know what their needs are. A rural district has very different needs than an urban district. The only the only thing that I think is a is a huge hedge on all of this. Things are getting out of control. I mean, the case numbers are rocketing up and health experts have been very clear that one of the smartest things governors did was close the schools because they are huge incubators of virus spreading. All these kids get together their noses are all running. They take it home. They get everybody sick. And I, you got to think that as we get closer to the zero hour in August, that there's going to be a reality check. Like, do we really want to take all these people and put them in the same building and then send them back home where there's lots of vulnerable populations? DeWine's not talking about that. And, and the school districts are all, if you talk to any of them, they, they're all kind of panicking. Teachers are scared to death because they all think they're going to be infected, you got to think that we're not at the end of this road yet. Right. And, I mean, and it's going to take a lot of money to do some of these things, you know, make sure the buildings are clean and setting up the distance and everything. And, and he um, lets and, slip that he's and, not giving them anymore. <laughs> yeah. And, and let's not forget, he cut them, the, the, he cut their funding because of yeah, the and, crisis. And he, he did say he's hoping that they might get some CARES Act money to to put toward this, but it's sort of like they're on their own. But he did drop for the first time Thursday that the levels he cut them to in the budget year that ends, well, that ended uh, two days ago, three days ago, will be their level for the foreseeable future, which right. he'd never really said that before. So, <laughs> you know, you're not getting any money. Uh, so, which I think is one of the reasons he's not making requirements because if you start to impose a lot of requirements, the schools are going to say, well, you've got to pay for this. That's an unfunded mandate. Chris Ranowski, you were trying to say something. 
Oh, no, I was just sighing. sighing. (laughs) (laughs) So this is, I mean, every time I get together with, with moms, like this is the number one thing that we're concerned about, right? Like we obviously want to keep people safe. We want to keep our kids safe, but we also know that like distance learning didn't work for a whole lot of kids and you can't just keep going and not learning anything. One teacher I talked to said there were kids that never showed up and like they never turn in assignments. Like they just kind of dropped off after March. I mean, what do you do about those kids? And the mask thing, my personal thing, having a a seven-year-old and a nine-year-old who lose everything is like, I think that when kids walk in the door, they should be given a disposable mask. They should get a new one after lunch because like, can you just imagine how many kids forget their masks? I, I, I just, I cannot imagine if we're trusting these small children to bring a mask every day that it's going to work. And many of these schools are, you know, they're, they're close quarters anyway. They don't have a lot of room to spread out. So I don't know if they're going to put desks in hallways or lunchrooms or gym. I, it's going to be really interesting Laura, to see what they come up with. The, the problem is, as you go out and about, even for adults who are wearing masks, many of them are not wearing them right. They're under their noses or they're, yes. they're very loose and so if adults can't figure out how to wear a mask correctly, even if your kid shows up at school with all the other kids and is given a mask, what are the chances that that's going to be an effective block of the virus? They're still going to be transmitters of it. If they get together, coming from all sorts of walks of life in the school building, chances are you're going to get exposed to the coronavirus. I don't know how you avoid it. I mean... Well, you and don't he, open the schools. That's how you avoid right. it. <laughs> right. Exactly. Can we just have outdoor school? Like, I will, like, we just keep Yeah, that'll that work out. in January. We really yeah. well in the Cleveland area. <laughs> I don't know. I will have to see. I just, I, everybody's grappling with this. It's, it's clear. Health experts have been clear. Schools were the smartest thing governors did. And the ones that shut them down the earliest saw the best results. So Russian, I mean, Everything's reopened except the schools, and they're the most dangerous thing. I mean, bars are but pretty Chris, bad. But... We now have pediatricians saying that it's doing kids more harm being out of school than, you know, these are like, pediatricians. The psychology. This is not an easy, easy question at all. I mean, there are just so many factors on both sides. Okay. Well, it's, we have the guidelines now, so we know where we stand. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. One of those Toledo City Council members accused of in the big corruption case that is brewing over there. Chris Ranowski, this is not Cuyahoga County style corruption by any stretch. What happened there? So last week, there was an indictment unsealed that accused four Toledo City Council people of 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 soliciting bribes and funneling money like through their, their campaigns. And uh, the, the council people, Tyrone Riley, Yvonne Harper, Larry Sykes, and Gary Johnson, uh, are all charged with bribery after an extensive two-year investigation and this kind of outline in all these court documents. And there's a lot to this story that it's it would be difficult to sort of sum it up in the time that we have here. But uh, to give you sort of an example of what was happening, Harper is accused of like openly, uh, uh, like, talking about his need for cash in exchange for, for giving help to to businesses that need licensure and stuff like that. And, you know, others demanded money and the indictment described attempts to hide bribes and 
stuff, you know, went through friends and camp. I mean, it's just, it's so extensive, but you know, what, what's really interesting here is that the amount of money that was being exchanged here was very, very small when you consider the risk that these people are accused of sort of taking and, you know, the sort of risks they took with their political careers just in exchange for these small amounts of money. I mean, that's, that's what everybody sort of was scratching their heads about when this, when the story came out. So, right. If you're going to be corrupt, you ought to, you ought to make some money <laughs> on it. Like they did in Cuyahoga County. I mean, yeah, the least right, you could do, this is Jane Cahoon is get like a outdoor pizza oven or a tiki or, a, or yeah, whatever, a big you know? palm tree. And, or if you're Frank Russo, a million dollars, these people were, were cheap. Okay. You're listening this week in the CLE. All right. Good to have all of us back in the house for the podcast, Laura. So we'll, uh, we'll, We'll manage to do this for the next few weeks till somebody else takes a week off. Thanks, Laura. Thanks, Jane. Thanks, Chris. Thanks to everybody who listens to This Week in the CLE. We'll have another episode tomorrow.